0: this week on the back table podcast and what aaron's describing is like you come into one of your partner's cases and it looks like a a contrast bomb went off on top of the kidney that's exactly what you do not want so you cannot like if you are not in don't keep injecting contrast hoping that it's going to fill something as soon as you just as soon as you see blob stop and then you just need a better needle position but I think we've all been in those cases, either where it's our case or our partner's, where you look, at the, you look at the kidney and you're just like, just shaking your head, you just feel terrible.
1: It was literally like one of the cases in my first week of fellowship with Mackle And I just remember the look <laughs> on his face was just like, it was like two hours later and he's <laughs> like, God damn. You know it and so i i kind of have like ptsd from that because i remember how angry he was and 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 i was like i don't want that to ever happen to me now it still did happen to me at times Mm -hmm. and sometimes you just got to abandon the case you're just like i don't know how i'm ever going to get an f-tube in here
0: because given the way this looks Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you'd like to listen to podcasts on. You could also find them on the website, backtable.com. Now a quick word from our sponsor.
1: For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique, extendable, beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Specs LP created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Specs Shapable Support Catheter. And the new line of Core Catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. This year, Reflow Medical is proud to join their colleagues as Viva celebrates its milestone 20th anniversary. Be sure to stop by and visit the Reflow Medical Booth at Viva. Now, back to the episode.
0: So today, I'm joined with Aaron Fritz, very regular co-host for the podcast. And this is what we're going to kind of be calling the Back to Basics series. So we're just going to be talking about nephrostomy tubes, how to troubleshoot them, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Fritz, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. I uh, really enjoy covering these basic topics with you. You know, we've got one on Apps of Strangers coming out soon. We just did a G tube one. It kind of goes back to the early days of Backtable, which I think is is fun and, and you know, the the thing that we all you know, we all evolve as Docs in terms of our technique, and we pick things up along the way. And so, I think that's kind of the the whole point of these back to the basics is just for people, whether you you're new coming out or you're out there, you know, a little bit more experienced, and a little more seasoned, you might just pick something up in these uh, basic series. So, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I think there's always a lot of utility in kind of going revisiting topics that have, or not topics, but procedures that you do all the time. I mean, just in researching for the podcast, I came up with a couple of things either from the SIR forum or the, maybe it's SIR now, whatever they put the lectures on now. All right, so let's jump into it. So do you wanna talk about your current or maybe your prior practice and how Neftubes kind of came your way?
1: Yeah, so just an update for everybody. Um, We didn't really talk about it much on the last episode, but I, I have been doing locums work about one or two weeks per month for my old group, Texas Radiology Associates in North Dallas. I am now currently residing in Paris with the family for a year, little family adventure, and I'm traveling back uh, periodically to help cover these locums Weeks. And so my, I cover you know a few different community hospitals in the Plano and, and Allen uh, area, and uh, a lot of times we get consulted for nephrostomy tubes, usually for hydronephrosis, usually from the urology team. Sometimes we'll uh, it'll be from the gyn team for somebody uh, you know a patient who may have uh, some sort of gynecologic cancer uh, or post radiation having uh, issues with either hydronephrosis due to the cancer or uh, uh, obstructing tumor or maybe for diversion for somebody who's had who had some sort of urinary leak you know post surgery Uh, those are those can be tricky because they're not dilated but uh, I would say the majority of our Nephrostomy tubes come from urology, either for an obstructing stone, or it might even be a uh, pre-op lithotripsy case where we're getting access for them prior to uh, stone removal.
0: Yeah, so I can say that my practice kind of mirrors your own, and that most of the referrals are from ER or urology. With most of them coming from urology indications, same as everybody out there, I believe. You know, obstruction, diversion, stone access. So basic workup, you want to talk about what you're looking for out of your patients? Like if, let's just say urology hasn't touched the patient and, you know, for some reason ER consulted you before almost anything was done. Can you talk about like what you want as far as labs, uh, imaging, and your history workup?
1: Yeah. So I want to, you know, usually if it's an ER putting the consult in, I'll, I'll ask them if if urology has seen them and, and I'll try to have a conversation with urology uh if possible but if it's just urosepsis and and they want to get a tube in right away first thing is just make sure the patient's you know coags are within normal limits you know I'd like the INR less than 2 uh if they're on any blood thinners plavix aspirin anything else for you know if they've had a history of dvt i, I just want to kind of get an idea of what they're on and see you know based off the urgency, because, you know, we're sticking a tube through the kidney. Kidney has a lot of blood vessels running through it. I always talk to the patient ahead of time about the risk of bleeding is, is probably one of the most, it's probably the the most serious and common complications of an F-tube, I would say, is bleeding. So I'm always very wary of like, you know, uh, anticoagulation and trying to reverse that if if I need to. And at the very least, have that conversation with both the referring doc and the patient, and the patient's family, if they are on something. Depending on the emerg- emergent nature of, of placing the nev tube, I'm um, also looking at their white counts, see how elevated it is, see how sick they are, and you know, are they febrile? Just kind of give an idea of like how urgent this is, as to do we bump the rest of the day and bring this patient straight down, or can this patient wait till maybe later in the afternoon? Uh, or even the next day. So just kind of help gauge the how how urgent we need to to place this tube.
0: Yes, similar. Um, I like to eyeball the patient, see. I mean, basically, it's kind of like, do they pass the eye test? Like, how toxic do they look? And then everything else after that, I can kind of, you know, determine if I have to, like, work really quickly or work really slowly. Um, and same thing. I usually look at the labs ahead of time. Any cross-sectional, if they have it. Um, if someone doesn't have cross-sectional or... I guess in a majority of your referrals, do they already have some kind of cross-sectional for you to look at? I mean, sometimes they might just have ultrasound.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's just ultrasound. You know, they did a, you know, the, there was a creatinine bump or they, um, you know, on the labs and, and they took a look at the kidneys with ultrasound and saw, you know, severe hydronephrosis. And again, like, you're, like you said, like sometimes urology hasn't had a chance to see them yet and they are sick and they want to just get an F-tubing quick. Usually, there's a CT, especially when there's a stone involved. They've at least done a non-con CT, and yeah, I mean that is the next step after looking at their labs. Is okay. Let's look at the anatomy. Let's see where the stone is. Let's see um, how dilated it is. What let's look at our expected or potential tract. Uh, make sure there's no colon in the way. We you know we were talking about this before. It's like I want if, if there is significant hydronephrosis, I actually want to kind of target my Calyx ahead of time. So I want to see where's the most posterior calyx. Is it inferior pole? Is it mid pole? I try to avoid upper pole unless it's some sort of unless it's a low lying kidney. But uh, yeah, I I use CT all the time when available uh, to help plan it out.
0: Yeah, and I'll say uh, to follow up on that if it's a stone case, like for lithotripsy after stone or after uh, renalax or after after access into the uh, collecting system, I'll always have a CT ahead of time. And a lot of times, like our urologists have seen them at like an outside facility, so I don't have access to that CT. So I'll get a CT beforehand, just, you know, while they're in pre-op. I think like that's, I think that's critical for planning, or if you can get access to the outside CT. But I think if you're doing a stone case, you got to know where your stones are, stone burden, and potentially kind of be mapping that out in your head ahead of time
1: oh for sure yeah for mm-hmm. a lithotripsy case ct is essential I, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't proceed without it
0: yeah every now and then there's like a renal transplant where i don't have like cross like recent cross-sectional imaging like they'll, we'll just use ultrasound and to me that that's fine but usually prefer to have some kind of cross-sectional but ultrasound will do uh, in some scenarios
1: really so uh, just to back up on that so a renal yeah. transplant i think i would Absolutely want a CT because of the different anatomy, right? If a you know a renal transplant is going to be lower in the pelvis, and so you got to know if is there anything in the way, like what's your you know what's your route going to be. So I would I would think a CT would be absolutely necessary for a renal transplant.
0: I should back up and say that almost always the renal transplants will have some kind of cross-sectional imaging that you can review from maybe a yeah. year ago, two years ago, six months ago, but the right. like the most recent reason that they're in the hospital, like if it's pyonephrosis and they were just looking for hydro and see if there's any debris within the collecting system, like I'm, I'm like, ultrasound is fine and I'll just move forward with that. But yeah. usually, I mean, in that scenario, if it's a, a transplant, you almost always have some kind of cross-sectional imaging. True, yeah. So... Oh, anesthesia. What do you like for anesthesia? Yeah. I'm always doing moderate sedation. It's rare
1: that we need like general anesthesia. Usually like if it's a a really sick patient that might be the reason why urology doesn't want to do it because uh, they're too sick and we just got to get a tube in fast. And you know, in a, you know, for for stent placement from below. And so I'm always doing moderate sedation, you know, Versed and fentanyl sometimes will give the patient even a little bit of Benadryl if their pressures are a little bit tenuous. Uh, you know, if their pressure's a little bit low, give them something that just get them sleepy and comfortable because the last thing you want is them squirming around, moving around when you're trying to get access under ultrasound, it makes it extremely difficult. Oh, dude, we didn't plug in the beginning, we didn't plug episode 97 with, with David Field. But for, for listeners, you know, David Field at Georgetown, a good friend of mine and uh, one of uh, Chris's former attendings at Georgetown, he came on uh, the show, episode 97, gave some good tips and tricks as well, uh, mostly around using cone beam CT for tricky stone cases. But uh, yeah, in case you want to go back and listen to that, some good tips there. That just made me think of it because he was talking about how essential it is for the patient to be still. I think they use anesthesia actually a lot of times.
0: No, I think they do moderate, I mean, having been at Georgetown, do moderate sedation for an overwhelming majority, but if they know it's going to be a tough one, like an obese patient for urinary diversion, that's whenever he gets GA involved or anesthesia involved for general anesthesia. So I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'd say local, almost very infrequent that you're just doing these under local, unless it's like an ICU patient who's kind of already snowed and super sick, and you're worried about blood pressure. But for the most part, overwhelming majority, moderate sedation, fentanyl and versed. And then I will occasionally use anesthesia on my cases, and I probably use it more than most people. But I just think like whenever I I look at the risk of the procedure, if you have a patient prone with labile blood pressures, I just like to be focusing on my thing, and I like anesthesia to focus on their thing. And there's so many patients, especially urinary diversion, where they're up walkie-talkie, and you're trying to keep them comfortable, and it's like critical to keep them still, And I feel like those are the patients who are like moving all over the place. And so if I think like I need like a patient to like if size is a factor, patient size is a factor and it's a decompressed system, I have a lower and lower threshold to move to like using anesthesia. Now, I don't care if anesthesia doesn't or max necessarily or paralyzes them, but I, I do like anesthesia to kind of do their thing and keep the patient super comfortable so I don't have to worry about them uh moving around outside of the respirations.
1: Yeah, there's been a couple of times, and this was a little bit earlier in my career where, you know, I, I failed. It was for a pre op lithotripsy case for access. And I, I just failed. Um and, you know, not that it was all on the patient. The patient was, you know, squirming and stuff. And, you know, you'd get access and then you'd lose access because there was a millimeter of space, you know, between the stone and that collecting system. And and so I would ha- I would bring the patient back and I'd just say, sorry, you know, we gotta do this with anesthesia because I-, I couldn't get you to hold still. And so there have been cases like that where it's really more just after I failed with moderate sedation. I d um, but I could see where a tricky case, obese patient, you know, they're already gonna be seen by anesthesiologist in the in the lithotripsy case. Why not have them help out for the access act part of it as well? So yeah,
0: yeah, and I'll also say you know my practice is different than other people's. I hear people complain about anesthesia and access to anesthesia. As long as my anesthesia team knows ahead of time, especially if it's a patient I'm booking as an outpatient, they don't have any yeah. problems showing up to my cases. Now, if I'm trying to add them on last minute at three o'clock in the afternoon, yeah, you get pushed back just like at any institution. But um, right. yeah, so as long as I can know ahead of time, that's very helpful. All right, do you want to talk about What your procedure looks like, just basic dilated system, 70 kilogram patient. Oh, love those. Cause yeah, Kevin, all the time. Then it
1: feels like, (laughs) then it feels like an ultrasound guided abscess drain placement, you know? And, and and I was, I was listening back to the episode I did with David, and, you know, he's right. It's really, that's essentially what it is. It's a little bit riskier, right? Because you have, you're passing this tube through the kidney, which has a lot of blood vessels running through it. So there's the bleeding risk. And then there's the, the respiratory motion, which can be challenging to deal with. And um, so David had some good tips about just making sure that you have good visualization with ultrasound. And the nice thing with a skinny patient is you you typically do because they don't have a lot of sure. back fat. So f- first step with me is, so the patient gets on the table, right? And before they prep and drape the patient, I always let them know, hey, have ultrasound in there. I'm going to mark before we prep anything. Because if I don't do that and what happens sometimes if I'm like caught in a case and I'll get a chance to and they prep the patient out is they always will prep out <laughs> an area that's either too medial, too superior, too, you know, it's all, it's just off. And so I end up it's having just a, hard.
0: Yeah, it is hard pick to pick nail up the it. adhesive.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't know why, because a lot of them have done like thousands of nephrostomy tubes, but they just, you know, and so you, ha- I feel like it just helps make sure that they clean the the right area. And, and, you know, they always do a wide prep and like nothing, you know, our technologists are great, but for whatever reason that that's why I just started saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to mark before we do anything. And I always try and mark, you know, this is where the, the pre-procedure CT really helps is okay. Making sure you know where that, that colon is, you sure. know, is it, is it pretty? Is it is it lateral? Is does it come posterior at all? Um, And and that just gives you that peace of mind that you're not going to be traversing the colon because sometimes the colon can be collapsed. You can't see it on ultrasound necessarily. And then I don't go so far medial where I'm going through paraspinal muscles. You want to kind of find that that perfect angle. That's I don't know what the degree is necessarily, but just you know just lateral to the paraspinal muscles, but not too far lateral where you're risking hitting colon. Um, and so I, 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 scan through that area, try and find a lower pole calyx. that's posterior. If not, if there's not one posterior lower pole, then there might be one mid pole. And, uh, I mark my spot and then I let them prep and drape the patient. A lot of times, on, can,
0: if it's, can I, can I ask you about, yeah. uh, positioning? Like, do you have your patient straight prone or do you put a bump underneath just, the hip? They're straight, straight prone. prone. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: They're straight prone. It gets tricky when they're bilateral. Like sometimes when, the, with the especially with like these, um, Malignant masses, you know it'll be bilateral hydro, and then it's like, okay, do you just prep one side and 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 do it on one side and then go around to the other side? I have gotten in the <laughs> I've had a couple where I try and just oh I'm, I'm just gonna reach over right it's easy, it's dilated, it looks great, and sure enough, it doesn't go smoothly, and I'm kicking myself and so I just I'm just from now on I'm like i'm gonna we're gonna do one side, and then we're gonna turn. We're gonna bring everything to the other side, and we're gonna do it on the other side, because that's gonna save us time in the long run. Anyway, I digressed on that, but it just made me think of that because I've had a couple where I'm just like, why didn't I just take the time to go go stand on the other side? Yes, you know, because it it looks like a chip shot. You're like, oh, this is easy. I can do this, but it's just the position. You know, everything's off, and so I, I just for for those, I recommend. Don't make the same mistake. Just have your tech bring everything to the other side. Take that time and do it right. No, um, for
0: for any of the new I.R.s, I'm going to disagree. I'll tell, I'll say you uh, have to try. You have to try and do it both from the same side. And you, there, there's only no one can tell you that. You just have to learn by doing a couple and being uncomfortable. Your back is hurting because you're trying to lean over this patient. But I've also came to the same conclusion as you that despite how much my techs like are like, hey, can't you just lean over? I'm like, no, flip the room flip it now and like i just yeah. want to like i've i've just had too many we're exactly like you i thought it was going to be easy it should have been easy and it was hard because i was trying to like work from an uncomfortable position and also like ergonomics like as i'm getting older is becoming more and more important and so i'm i'm done trying to like stick a, a neck tube for a le- leaning over from one side of the patient
1: yeah exactly and and like so it's it's off ergonomically um and then and then you're gonna get your you're gonna have your hands in the beams they're all uh, in the field right i mean it's just stupid honestly so yeah i just suggest taking your time having the tech and the and the you know the team might moan and groan oh can't you just do it from no guys let's do it the right (laughs) way yeah Um, okay (laughs) all right yeah so anyway so then, you know, they prep and drape, uh, prep and drape everything, and um, under ultrasound guidance, I I'll put lidocaine in all the way down to the renal cortex. You want that whole pathway just coated with bathed. lidocaine, yeah, bathed because. What'll happen is, you know, you, you just get a bunch in superficially, especially with the obese patients, and then you get your Chiba or whatever needle, your acoustic needle down. And then as soon as you get close to that area where you didn't anesthetize or around the renal cortex, they, that's when they start flinching and squirming. And, and you know, you, then you lose your sight under ultrasound. So just bathe that whole area all the way down to the to the renal cortex, just like you would for like a liver biopsy. You, you know, there's more tissue to cover So sometimes it's more than 10 cc's, sometimes it's 20 cc's, Uh, but don't be afraid to do that because that's what you need.
0: I'll also say the other advantage to bathing the area in lidocaine, sometimes you actually get, you know, like someone, if you're in the paraspinal fat and you put on a whole bunch of lidocaine or maybe... Half strength lidocaine, like a tumescent type area. You'll kind of get yeah. like um some anechoic areas that make it easier to find the needle in the paraspinal fat. So there's like a double advantage to anesthetizing the patient on top of keeping them comfortable. Yeah. Okay, but sorry, keep going.
1: No, it's fine. And then the other key thing is is make your incision first. Uh, mm-hmm. what I used to do, I used to be like, oh, well, I might stick another spot, so I don't want to make a excessive excision. But then what happens is you, you, it's always hard to make your incision afterwards. It's always hard to dilate when you have the, the, the needle or the wire already in there. So I make the incision and, you know, kind of open it up a little bit with my curved hemostats first. And that just makes it honestly helps you with guiding your needle, I think, uh, versus trying to just stick through the skin and get it down. So I, I do that. I make my neck first. And then, like, just like David was saying, like I, I, I watch my needle. I get it in plane under ultrasound. And I want to. I want to see my dilated calyx and just watch my path all the way down. And you don't hesitate once you see that trajectory of where you are and where you're going. Just one nice smooth movement past that cortex, because you know you, you don't want to baby step it or gingerly kind of, because that's when the patient's going to flinch. And, and you know you want one nice continuous movement into the into the calyx. Save that ultrasound image once you see your needle tip in that calyx. And then if you if you're pretty confident you're in under ultrasound, uh, and then you, you pull that inner stylet out and you have urine, there's no need to inject. Uh, you can just put your wire in, try and get the wire to go all the way down. I like try to get it into the into the ureter. If I can get it going into the mid to distal ureter, perfect. Then yeah, I then I funny. know yeah then I know my either Accu and we'll talk about AccuStick stick versus nef in a sec, but then I know I can get my my dilator in and the the set all the way down near the ur and i have I have good purchase real quick i want to ask you what your preference is, but what I've learned recently is and it's funny how this just happened recently I think it was because I didn't have access to the nef set at a lot of places but I like the acoustic needle for, for visualization under ultrasound, but I like the Nef set for the actual dilator and cannula because it's just, I think it has a little bit more flexibility to it. What I've had issues with with the acoustic set in the, in the past, especially with a stone, is um, it's a little bit too stiff and it can actually tear a hole in the, um, in the, in the urethelium or, you know, whatever, the pel- you know, the renal pelvis, if you sure. don't get that angle right. So I, I was curious to know what your what your experience is with Acustic versus Neff
0: versus anything else. So I haven't used the Neff set since Fellowship. We have the Acustic set and then there's, we use a Flexima uh, kit, which has like a transitional set built into it. I don't know if it, I don't know if that is an Acustic or a Neff set, but I think it's just, their version of the transitional set. So I, I can't even remember. I mean, the only thing I can kind of remember about the Neff set is that it had a radio opaque marker at the tip.
1: Right, So you yeah, yeah that's but, helpful too.
0: Yeah, that is helpful, but and I remember thinking like, man, why don't they all have that? But I guess now that I haven't had it for so many years, like I don't even think twice about it. Like I can just, you know, just your eye starts to pick up on where it is. You can kind of see right. it, especially if you yeah. watch it going in. So I can't comment a lot about that nef set
1: that's just kind of what i've learned recently and you know sometimes if for whatever reason they have a lot of subcutaneous fat and you can't really see your needle well i'll try different you know try a chiba needle i'll try different needles to just see what what works best depending on what they have available but usually i'll just use the icu stick needle or even if they don't have a stick i'll just use the nefset i'll start with what they typically have on the shelf and then kind of go from there
0: hold on so let's let like while we're on it can we talk about preferred needle like? gauge yeah. uh length yeah. and brand
1: i don't honestly pay a lot of attention to it, it it's okay. kind of like i think different brands have different styles of chiba needle because chiba is really just the the shape right of the needle tip like so you're saying you can
0: get different brands of chiba needles
1: i believe so i believe yeah, yeah different I think so yeah yeah i think a lot of places different yeah yeah, different yeah
0: yeah it's like getting a spinal needle from a different yeah okay gotcha i see what you're saying. Yeah.
1: I think that what I do is I just, you know, whatever is echogenic, I can see, I, I don't know. I'm kind of like the sort of practical, flexible type. So whatever they put on the back table is what I'll try first. Okay. And then if that's not working, then I will ask for something else, but I'm not super particular about the needle I use. I do like the acoustic needle. i find that it worked nine times out of 10. It works pretty well.
0: I'm like on the other end of the spectrum. I'm extremely particular about the needle. So I almost never use the AcuStick needle. Like It's it's like 15 centimeters, and I think it's a 22-gauge. But because I don't use it, I can't comment on it a whole lot. Um, But I'll always try and use the shortest needle that I know is going to get me there. And my standard needle... So if the patient's really cachectic, I'll use a micropuncture set, like the same thing you'd use for vascular access. I mean, the needles are... Oh, the needles are like pristine. I mean, you can see everything. But don't get me wrong. In this patient, there are a lot of different things that would work. Um, yeah. But I've I've had some uh, non-dilated cachectic patients where I was glad that I used the um, uh, the micropuncture needle. And yeah. then if they're just kind of a normal size person, I'll do um, a 20-gauge spinal needle, like a 9-cm okay. spinal needle. And then yeah. if they're a little bit bigger, then I'll use a, a 20-gauge 12-centimeter needle. And if they, I think they're huge- and I'm going to have to go the 15 centimeter route. Then I'll still use a 20 gauge. But I'm almost 20 gauge with everything. I had an attending in fellowship who said anything worth sticking with a 22 gauge is worth sticking with a 20 gauge, and <laughs> I've I've taken that to heart. It's so e- it's so much easier to steer. In my experience, yeah. I haven't had a you know more complications from going from 22 to uh, or from going to from a 22 gauge to a 20 gauge, and. I Don't know, I've been very happy with that decision. I will say that I used to have our cath lab order the NRAD needles, which were an echogenic tip needle. It's got like a scored stylet where you can really see like the distal two or three centimeters of the needle. Those are super nice, they have a great hub to where like you can really choke up on the needle whenever you're advancing it, and like that stylet's not going to back out on you. There's a lot of good things about it, like I like the NRAD, but. Since then, I've, I've just kind of gotten away from it and we don't really order it anymore. But those are, if I ever have the luxury of using them, I, I do like those needles. I think they're very strong. The rad needle? Yeah, it's a very nice needle. Like for a couple different yeah. reasons, but that echogenic tip is, that's, that's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, for example, like that's what David mentioned he uses every time is the rad needle. And if you look at it's needles, like they have a variety of options, one of mm-hmm. which is a Chiba. I guess it depends on if you're someplace... Consistent, then you can get what you want in right. uh, in stock and always have it available. Uh, like I said, I cover a few different hospitals, and I just can't even keep them straight. So it's just kind of like I'll I'll make do with what what they give me. So the Nef set is also something that usually is not placed on the table immediately. Usually it's the Acoustic set. Mm-hmm. So so what you're saying is you'll you'll get the you'll have the Acoustic set for dilation, but you are particular about which needle you use.
0: Yeah, very particular about the needle, but not necessarily about the transitional set. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. All right. So I'm going to bring you back to your procedure. So you've gotten access with your uh, crummy 22-gauge (laughs) 15-centimeter needle in this like really thin patient. So you have like nine centimeters of needle hanging out, and then you have access. You may or may not inject, and then uh, wire goes in, and then you've dilated to the so you got the transitional set in, and then what next?
1: Yeah, so um, I dilated up to the acoustic, uh, or sorry, Acustic, like cannula. And so then I will usually place, it'll be like an amplats, like an 01, or, or sorry, 035 amplats, unless I'm, if I'm trying to get around a stone or something like that, I, I might do a glide uh, mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of times it's tough to get an amplats around a stone or the other thing is is like let's say i didn't get down let's say there's not much purchase and i wasn't okay. able to get down into the ureter then i will take something directional like a like a glide to try and get it down into the 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 ureter so i have more purchase sure. so sometimes sometimes you know even though they're dilated the pel- the renal pelvis isn't terribly big or your wire keeps wanting to go up in an upper pole calyx cuz you're mm-hmm. coming in from an angle uh, it's just not ideal to like have your wire cold in an upper pole calyx, and you know when you're placing that initial neph tube. So then I'll I'll grab something that's directional to try and get it to you know make that curve down into the ureter. But most times you're you're able to get some good purchase with that Amplatz wire, dilate it up. If it's like grossly purulent pyonephrosis, then I am placing probably a 10 French pigtail or neftube, if it's, um, just like, you know, maybe a little bit dirty or, or if it's just clear urine, then I'm just going to stick with an eight French.
0: Okay. All right. So that's, that's like your basic procedure. Yeah. So let's kind of move on to tips that if you, you know, there are tips that are used for certain scenarios and tips that are helpful for in general, like whatever neftube, I wrote down a bunch, but you can kind of jump in and talk about, um, your experience and things that might help. I'll say, like, I'll start out by just saying, um, one of the things I use that I always think has been helpful is if I am going to inject the needle with some contrast to make sure that I'm in, I'll use a mini bore connection tubing. Do you do you have a preference on your tubing or just whatever they hand you?
1: No, I, I just, I, I do want some length so that I can get my, keep my hands yeah. out when I'm injecting. And so, yeah, definitely have some extension tubing to connect, to uh, inject, make sure, you know, confirm that you're in, collecting system do you want to talk about like hold on one? i wanted to i just want okay, to say like on.
0: specifically i like the mini bore only because like if you're at a really like a non-dilated system and you have like the the thicker connection tubing just like iv tubing sometimes that can pull on your needle one way or the other like it, it can ju- it just provides torque but that mini bore it's basically like your needle is just going to stay where it is it's kind of an easy slip tip on and off and if you want to screw it on that's fine I don't know that to me has always uh, been important for non-dilated systems but go what were you going to ask
1: no that's a great tip for non-dilated because like you, you know like we said like every millimeter counts if it yes. it's non-dilated yes. so you know you last it's so frustrating when you get your needle in place you actually maybe you get a little bit of urine back or you actually mm-hmm. confirm under ultra or you confirm uh, with contrast injection that you're in and then the patient moves or like you said you tug on you know something tugs on the needle yes. and then you're out and yeah. you're like you know kicking yourself yeah.
0: And, and along that vein, I'll also say it's also nice to have a mushroom very close to you. I, I think that sometimes if, if you're somebody that has the text drive for you, I think that's totally fine. You know, you focus on your thing. They put you in the field. But for this scenario, like, have you ever just had it where like the tech's moving it and then they just they drop off the mushroom like as the table's moving and then like the whole patient shakes yeah, yeah. That, that to me is also very annoying whenever you're in like an, a biliary system or like a non-dilated yeah. uh, collecting system. So I like to have a mushroom nearby, like, you know, nice, easy in and out transitions from the field. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It'll drive me nuts.
1: (laughs) So you take, you take over as the driver, I assume. Yeah. I just, well, like I said,
0: I'm a particular guy and and like that, like, that's just like the last thing I want to happen. Like the patient's going to do what the patient does. And like, I'm not going to ever blame the patient for their things, but if like we're driving it and we're just like ramming the patient in and like shaking them all about, like that's on us. Right. Um, totally. All right. So some other good tips.
1: Yeah, so I, I do want to talk about the angle a little bit because okay. this is where I've gotten in trouble with, and I, this goes back to the acoustic being kind of stiffer, which helps you get through the subcutaneous tissues, like especially for an obese person. But it can, it can, it can uh, mess you up too. So even like, you know, this happened to me. Especially, I remember this distinctly because I was reaching over for a dilated uh, system that was on the other side, and I'm like, oh, chip shot, I'll get this in. And uh, my access, because it was a dilated lower pole calyx, but the angle was kinda a little bit caudal, and my access was a little bit steep, right? Okay. And so I came in and I even had my wire go up and over into the ureter, right? So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, well I got good it's a little <laughs> steep, but I got good yeah, purchase. Yeah. Well, I go to dilate with the acus stick, and that stick was so is is stiff, and so it actually As it was passing cranial and then Mm -hmm. trying to make that curve it actually tore a hole in the urothelium right um and it's uh and 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 it might have been because i maybe pulled my dilator the inner dilator out and was passing the the outer cannula over the wire during you know during that steep i see what you mean yeah and i and i tore a hole in the urothelium and then after that it was you know, there's a hole. So every time I inject a con- and, and I was like, ah, this doesn't feel right. So yeah, then I pulled. Yeah. I, I wanted to. So I pulled my wire out to inject, and then I'm seeing this extrav. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, now I don't know where I am, right? Sure. Yeah. Um. Did I? Am I outside? Right. Uh, and 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 so that I think, and it was the angle. I was like, a, I should have stopped everything, moved everything, been on the other side, so that I was working in an appropriate like position. And then B, I should have been more cognizant of what my angle was like. And then C, knowing that I had that steep angle and if maybe that was my only option, I would have switched out for the Nef set which is again a little bit more flexible and I would have had that dilator go all the way over that over that hump over that angle. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I know I get that. And and then you also have the option of, you know, you should get your Nef set into the like before it makes the turn. And then you go wire comfy to drive it down home. And then, yeah. you know, like as far sometimes like I, I know what you mean, like when you have a real lower pole calyx and then you're trying to go up and over from the renal pelvis yeah. to the ureter. Um, yeah. I have to admit, yeah, that that is a that is a steep turn to make. And oftentimes I don't make it with the Acoustic set. But so going back even one further preferred access site. I know that you said lower pole. I'm, I think lower pole is like the the textbook answer, but I do like a good mid pole access for just that reason. Um, right, like whenever, right. whenever I, yeah, whenever I do the accesses, um, mid pole, it's usually a, a lot of times it's a shorter distance from skin to target. It's got like a favorable angle. Whenever you hit the renal pelvis, it's easier to like duck straight down and be in the ureter. And then everything kind of just goes smoother f- from that. But you know, lower pole access is, is the standard, but I think mid pole access can also work out very nicely.
1: Right. And just to let people know why lower pole access is, is favored. One is, you know, lesser risk of bleeding, right? That's what we, the way I was trained or told, I I don't, I haven't seen like an article uh, about it, but that's what I was told is that's one of the reasons why you go lower pole over mid pole. And then Upper pole is a given. It's just, you know, you're up close to the diaphragm. You don't want to cross uh, the portal space or anything like that. And a lot of times it's not even, you can't even visualize it a lot of times because of the rib cage. But uh, yeah, anything to add to that?
0: So I'll say upper pole is definitely a higher risk of lung injury, but it's also higher risk of bleeding. Um, I think yeah. that's documented. Um, what yeah. I never have known the difference uh, is that if is there like really that big of a difference between a lower pole, like the lowest pole calyx? Over like one that's just slightly above. And so that that's what I haven't seen. And so that's why I'll choose a lot of times to go mid-pole calyx. Calculated decision. And oftentimes, like uh, some of my partners go lower pole calyx. And it's like this long 14 centimeter, like just slow climb to the, like the real yeah, collecting systems. yeah, And I'm just like, well, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, but like everything gets harder the more length you introduce into it. And so... Yeah. I've kind of preferred like a more like midpole access, steep bomb. Like, I just try and dive right down on it by like changing yeah. my angle to like really steep, where it's almost like I, I kind of pivot the ultrasound where it's almost like I'm perpendicular to the skin. And so it, you know, instead of a, a 14 centimeter uh, skin to target, it's more like nine centimeters. Like, I, I can get a lot of procedures done with that nine centimeter 20 gauge needle.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great point. And, and what's whatever, whatever's most posterior, right. you know, I mean, mm-hmm you might have you might think you see something on ultrasound and it ends up being more of an anterior calyx when you actually get into it and sometimes you just don't know but yeah i agree like the lesser distance uh the lesser that tube has to travel the better um yep. despite slightly increased bleeding risk theoretically yep.
0: all right so one of the other tips that i have jotted down here is good ultrasound machine
1: mm yeah that's essential cuz you know a lot of times They'll bring it, they'll bring in like the, the crappy one that's just used for like accessing the IJ, yes. you know, for like a MediPort. And you're like, no, I, I got to be able to see the kidney. Um, so that's a great point, actually. Make yeah. sure that they bring I'll, in the the good one.
0: Yeah, so that's actually like a known thing. I'm going to level up that just slightly. So not only do you have to have a good ultrasound machine, like a diagnostic ultrasound machine, every now and then, if it's like, I think it's going to be really tough. I'll also ask the ultrasound tech to come in. And that way, like, I don't have to dress out the ultrasound machine. And like, they are like, I know it's sometimes like, I know some people are like, oh my God, my ultrasound techs would never do it. And I get that. But, you know, if I think a lot of sonographers would be very open to having them participate in a case when you tell them how important it is. And like, sometimes it's so nice. Like, they're just like making adjustments on the fly, changing the gain. Like when I'm like, whether I'm superficial or whether I'm deep and like, sometimes I just like, I'll show them the kidney and like, I'm like, all right, and I'll make the picture look good. And then they make it look beautiful. I mean, like beyond what I could do. And so that's made a big difference for me. Um, so yeah, so I'll bring the sonographer in there and ask them to give me a hand. And that's, that's a big level up.
1: That would be amazing because honestly, a lot of times, especially on your obese patients, that's half the battle just getting a good clean picture. And I'll spend, I might spend the majority of the procedure, just getting a nice Picture just trying to get that angle just right, Mm -hmm. and for them it's intuitive. It's just like it takes them two seconds to get a nice picture, and for your, for you, you're like, okay, how is the kidney angled on CT? Was it more medial to lateral? And you're trying to get it to look just right, and then a lot of times that hand, whether right or left, will be will hurt so bad afterwards because I I just was like clenching it the whole time trying to get you know trying to get access and so yeah. that would be amazing because then yeah. you could just focus on getting that needle where it needs to go
0: yeah. well also to be fair i will say i usually don't have them scrub like i'm usually still the one holding the probe but they're like working the machine for me like yeah. on the other end um yeah so it's still like on me to try and get that angle right but usually i can i can get that but you're right uh, but it's just nice to take that part of like the technical part of running the machine out of the equation totally. and I'll also like like thinking about ergonomics and positioning always have the ultrasound machine across from me, like not to the side, like not on the ipsilateral side that I'm sticking. And that's always like keeping my head like right, like square to my shoulders. Like that's always like important to me. All right. So good ultrasound machine, critical um, ultrasound tech, if available. Do you ever try and aspirate urine? Is that like, like if you don't get urine back, do you try and aspirate?
1: Yeah. So I'll have a little bit, whether it's my contrast, like I always tell it the Tech, I said, let just fill them half. Fill the syringe halfway, because when I'm, I'll, I'll aspirate first to see if I get urine back before mm-hmm. I inject. Okay. Um, so yeah, I will do that. And sometimes they want to send off urine for cultures, and I'll just grab whatever urine I get first, you know, before okay. I pump up a bunch of contrast in there.
0: Okay. I have to admit, I I never aspirate. I don't. Mm. I mean, like there there's, I mean, maybe it's because I'm not aspirating enough, but. Especially the like pyonephrosis, like if you aspirate and you don't get back urine, but you know, you think you're in, I mean, aren't there times when you think that you're in, but like you don't get uh, urine back or is it? I mean, you urine, urine if it's
1: back? Py, yeah, yeah if it's pyonephrosis. Urine's coming well, back I'll, as soon as you take that stylet out usually. I mean, right.
0: I don't know. Sometimes I Typically. get frank pus.
1: Oh, okay. That's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But like, so you yeah. always like, say like it's, um, it's stone access, like, so, and, and you're not hitting right down on the stone, like, and, and you get into like a little calyx, like you're going to get urine back every time before you inject.
1: Not every time, but so I'll, oh. I'll, I'll aspirate. Okay. I'll just uh-huh. check.
0: Yeah. So have you seen something called the Amplatz needle holder? Nope. Okay. So it's a thing where if you are trying to use fluoroscopy to do a needle, like a two two stick technique, you can have an Amplatz needle holder. It's a thing to keep your hand out of the beam. And it's also not particularly metallic. So you can see through it. So you can be sticking right down on it. I just pulled it out of a a lecture, but I don't have any real world experience with it. But it's a thing if anyone wants to look it up. So there there was one other thing that I wanted to mention, and I got to credit, um, there's an interventional radiologist, very good, named Matt Givens at the VA here in New Orleans who gave me this tip. He'll bolus them with, like, so if you have a non-dilated system, either stone or urinary diversion, you bolus your patient with half a liter of saline before they get on the table, like, you know, like oh. maybe 10, 15 minutes before you stick. And like, you know, Dave mentioned it, you can also plump them up. You can also, like, chase that with some Lasix. But if you just do that half a liter of bolus like that'll plump up a renal collecting system so like as you're so you give it to them right before you flip them on the table then you flip them on the table quick prep it'll plump in the system up whenever you're going for access
1: that's great advice yeah
0: yeah there's actually and i actually even looked it up there's a 2013 paper that we can link to in the show where they do uh, a lasik saline Combo, and they talk about that exact thing. But I've gotten similar results. Like I I use that to um for my non-deleted systems. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of downside, right? You know, it's just half a liter bolus, and then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But in my in my experience, like you can kind of see that like renal collecting system. Like it'll kind of puff up just a little bit, and you can actually even see it like under a good ultrasound. You can see the calyces kind of like distending up, and then it pushing that fluid out. It's kind of nice. I mean, that's
1: great advice for a stone case. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So the other thing I have mentioned, cone beam CT. Do you ever use cone beam to do a stick?
1: I've done it a couple of times where, to be honest, for stone cases, it helped me just kind of confirm that I was right on the stone and that I liked my angle, but it didn't really, there was some streak artifact and I don't know if it was that helpful, but I could see where it would be helpful if you did it like uh, it, for, for tricky cases, but it was like a routine stone. I, I kind of just did it to like confirm, you know, I was right on the stone. My trajectory was good. That was pretty much it. Yeah.
0: And I'll refer audience back to episode 97 with Dayfield. He talks a lot about using cone beam CT in their practice, yeah. has a lot of good, helpful information in there, both using some, uh, high end software and using it just regular cone beam. I don't use cone beam CT, I haven't. I've always known that I could like for a troubleshooting mechanism, um, but haven't had to come to that. I mean, so it's always in my back pocket, I always know about it, but the reality is not every hospital that I have has cone beam CT and certainly not every room that I work in has cone beam CT. And so it's gotta be a case that I kinda know about ahead of time.
1: Well, that's that's the whole thing for me is is access. So it's like, it'll be, if there's a case where I need it, I won't have it. And if there's a case where I don't need it, I'll have it. You yeah know, yeah so that <laughs>
0: yeah but i think like a good example like dave kind of paints the picture it's like those cases that you know are going to be really tough obese patients urinary diversion um yeah, that they're setting totally. up in that room with cone beam ct and a lot of times he said they use general anesthesia they'll paralyze them so they can get a breath hold and make it look better i mean i, I think like in practice cone beam ct is a little tricky to use on the fly but if you know about it ahead of time for either a failed nephrostomy tube or one you know is going to be difficult, I think setting it up ahead of time can make a difference for sure. Sure. All right. Now, two-stick technique. So you're like the, a, a senior IR doc. So like, I mean... I remember learning it. Yeah. Some of the older docs, like it makes like it's perfectly intuitive sense to them, but like kind of talk us about like how you do the two-stick technique and, and why you might use it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember learning it from parents. some of my older
0: attendings, older attendings who did, they didn't know how to use ultrasound. Like they
1: didn't train sure. them with ultrasound. So that was the way they did. Frost me tubes so was a two-step technique. And so, you know, they would, uh, a lot of times these patients would get contrast prior to getting on the table, right? And then that would kind of plump up the, uh, the collecting system so you could see under fluoro. And then they might stick it, it, they might just, they also might just stick the pelvis, the renal pelvis, especially for like a, a non-dilated system to then further increase the, to further dilate the system. And then you can really see the calyx well. And then under fluoroscopy, you stick that posterior lower pole calyx. That's how I remember learning about it, maybe even when I was a resident. And then when I started fellowship, then um, I started you know getting my ultrasound skills, uh, honing in on those and learning how to see the kidney well under ultrasound, get that clean picture, Stick it under uh, under ultrasound with a more one-step technique. Now that being said, I will still sometimes use the two-step technique where it's a non-dilated system, and maybe I can see the the renal pelvis under ultrasound. Yeah, but I don't see a dilated calyx, and I will just stick the renal pelvis under ultrasound and then inject under fluoroscopy, inject contrast to then you know kind of be able to see those uh, calyces and. Sometimes you you see it well under fluoroscopy, and then you look on ultrasound; it still doesn't look terribly dilated. So, you know, then I'll just stick under fluoroscopy, and that is that is a skill that is that can be tricky, right? Yeah. Talking about yeah. yeah, So how do you do
0: it? That's what I want to know.
1: So you have to angle your eye. So you know, traditionally, like kind of your AP when you're injecting that contrast. Okay, so. let me back up. So I have one needle in the renal pelvis, right? Okay. I start injecting. I, I have my tubing. I start injecting contrast slowly under fluoroscopy. I'm watching that system dilate, and you know it's really nice when there's an obstructive stone because it'll actually stay in the collecting system. Right, right. 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 Oftentimes, they're when they're non-dilated, they it it will just flow right down into the ureter, and so that's not helpful. But you know, you try. So you you are kind of. It is a timing game, right? You, the clock is ticking when you mm-hmm. inject, and so you really got to try and work speedily to 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 get access. So, so what I'll do is I'll inject and I'm watching under AP, and then I start to angle my the I laterally so that I can uh, start to visualize these calicis and kind of where they are spatially. And so if you if you bring it all the way lateral, then you're able to see what's posterior, what's anterior, and you'll, chances are you'll see a posterior calyx okay. um, kind of sticking up towards the back, right? Um, and so I will say, okay, I see that and I might even, I'll, I'll take a curved hemostat and I'll mark it on the skin surface where that mm-hmm. is, right? And then I actually will watch as I'm bringing it back, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that calyx and then I want to see it like sort of barrel down, like on foss, right? Yeah. And, and so- so I have my curved hemostat where it's at, and I will actually stick my needle right down on on that where that curved hemostat is, and, and so that I'm looking right down the barrel. I want my eye to be lined up with that needle, so it's right down the barrel of where that calyx is. And then I'll, I'll I'll put it in maybe like two centimeters, and then I'll angle my eye again so that I make sure that I can see that that needle is angled cranial caudally towards that calyx. Right? Sure. It's not like off. And so, so I'm verifying, okay, I'm, I'm lined up and then I'll bring it back to AP. So I'm down the barrel again. I know that I'm like, I'm lined up with it and I'll, I'll push it all, uh, you know, a good few centimeters further with that traject that same trajectory. And then I'll go back to my, my angled II. And it mm-hmm. might be four, it might not be entirely lateral. It might be just like, like forty five right, right, right. degrees, right? And then I, I then I'm close to it, right? Uh, so when I'm close to it, then I keep that angled view and I'll just poke it in. And I and yes. you'll see you'll see the you'll needle see it indent. Tent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you poke it in and then you kind of get a little bit of purchase into it. And you bring it back to the AP, make sure you're still right down the barrel of that calyx. Mm-hmm. Hopefully your contrast hasn't completely leaked out by then and then <laughs> i know it's a lot of back and forth but it's just kind of in real time it is that's a lot of back doing. and forth yeah yeah it's yeah.
0: legitimately a lot of back and forth
1: it is but it's like this is what's necessary you got to keep visualization otherwise you start over from zero right mm-hmm. if you're off and you're pushing that needle down and you're totally off then like you got to start over again you got to bring the yeah. needle all the way back right because yeah, yeah. you got to you got to keep that trajectory right on top of that calyx so then when i'm when i'm ready to take my stylet out and check. I actually go back to the angled view and I bring my I take my stylet out, I look I check for urine, and then what I'll actually do is especially if it's a non-diluted one, I'll actually test my wire out first. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't what I don't want to do is I don't want to inject contrast and I'm not in the calyx. And because then it creates a whole it will it'll be extra, right? And, it'll, and yeah. it'll obscure your visualization. So that's my and and so hopefully I'm in and then my my wire passes, gets up into the renal pelvis. And then I um, will. And you know, then you've won the game at proceed. that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But that's that's my two step technique. It is. Uh, it can be. It can be difficult. It can be painful. But that's how I do
0: it. Okay. So I'll just talk about my two step technique, and I won't pretend two, 2 stick. Right. Two. Stick. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Two stick technique. And, um, and
1: sometimes throughout. The, sorry. One more thing. Sometimes yeah, throughout yeah. that that going back and forth. You have to actually have your syringe filled up with contrast and be injecting because again, sometimes it just leaks, it goes right down in
0: the ureter, right? So yep. you have to keep pumping it up as you're as you're trying to position that needle. Yes. So I'll add on to it and then I'll throw out a couple of questions for us to kind of pick through. But I'll also stick down on the renal pelvis. I have kind of given up just injecting through the needle so if i'm in the renal pelvis i'll upsize like so i'll get a wire down and then i'll actually uh upsize to like the inner portion of the uh nephrostomy tube set or the neph set or the stick set and that way i have like good purchase and like that's that's something that's kind of off the table because i've had like access in the renal pelvis and then like i'm plumping it up and then somewhere along the way like i knock that out or the patient moves in a certain way and so Stable access, So I'll actually like get nice amount of purchase and have like the inner portion of the acoustic set in. So then you have total control over how much either saline contrast yeah. or air that you pump up in there. I don't like I usually don't like to use air or CO2 straight away because I feel like if I because sometimes I'll alternate between ultrasound and the two stick technique. Yeah, but and and I'm not just quite ready to give up on ultrasound. Once I've totally right. abandoned ultrasound, then it's like I'll use the air, I'll use CO2, but I'll plump up the system with uh, contrast. I'll find usually two or maybe three calices that I'm interested in, like in the AP projection, and you know you can read ways to like tease apart an anterior versus a posterior calyx in the AP projection, like in the IR books. You know they'll say that the posterior ones you view in foss the ap or the anterior calices they'll be at a little bit more obliquity mm-hmm. it's almost like you have to see a picture to explain what they're talking about but those aren't reliable enough for me like i can't use that reliably i mean maybe i can use it yeah. as a guessing game but i'll actually get three needles down so i'll put three needles at different lengths at my target calices in the ap projection and it's like you know they're if they're nine centimeter needles i'll put one in at you know six centimeters one at four one at two And then, and then I'll, and so I got three potential targets and then I'll rotate that into the lateral. And one of those is going to make the cut usually. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then I'll just use the different depths because like, I just have a lot of trouble like seeing it in lateral and like, so, I mean, I don't have that much trouble now. I've gotten better at it, but I used to get very disoriented once I move things to the lateral position. Sure. Yeah. And, and so that's what I do now to kind of take the guesswork out of it. And then I'll also find an oblique that works with, for me. And then that's my oblique. Like I'll save that as a table position. A lot of times I like the oblique where the II moves away from me. That'll usually yeah. put it on top of the spine, but that's usually more comfortable to work in. But once I find that oblique, I'll rotate it and then I'll, f- and I'll save that picture and put it off on my reference monitor. And then the whole time what I do is it's a rotation between AP and that same oblique as I'm trying to advance that needle down. yeah. And like you said, after that, it's trying to make sure that you're exactly down the barrel, a lot of needle discipline. I'll actually take it pretty far. Like when I'm in the AP projection, Mm -hmm. I'll take it really far down. And once I see that needle start moving with the kidney, like with the respiration cycle, that's when I'll take it to lateral. Sometimes I've gone through and through, sometimes I'm just on the outside of it and I just have to punch it home. But I do a lot of my work in the AP projection before I have to switch to the lateral.
1: And now what now when you're doing that did, are you actually using a 22 instead of a 20 gauge cuz this isn't like your standard dilated calyx
0: So I'll stick the renal pelvis with like a, a 22 gauge needle um yeah. but I still upsize to that stick set and then whenever I'm sticking the uh actual calyx I'm still using that 20 gauge
1: Okay Yeah I was just curious cuz you said you know you some you know cuz sometimes you do go through and through and I, I just learned, like, you just got to minimize the risk of extrav because otherwise it can just throw your whole procedure off, you know?
0: Yeah, I have to admit, like, it when I've gone, one, going through and through, you have to really be, bear, a lot of times you have to really be bearing the needle. You have to have an idea of, like, how the distance, like, in your head, like, what makes common yeah. sense. You know, if you have a 15 centimeter needle and you're hubbing it, I mean, you know, that doesn't make, <sighs> you know, yeah, intuitively yeah. that that's not yeah. going to work. But, like, if, when I have gone through and through... Well, sometimes actually you go through, and if you really put it right down the barrel of the the papilla, like you know, you'll you'll have gone through, but then you're like kind of like paralleling the infundibulum, so it can work totally. out for you. But right, yeah, if you go through and through, I don't find that the contrast leaks out into the renal uh, into the renal parenchyma.
1: No, not typically unless you've dilated or something like
0: yeah, that. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm also with you that there's no reason, like if you're trying to stick like a contrast uh, opacified system, you don't have to yeah. put more contrast in. You just kind of probe it with your wire and that's like what you're using.
1: Yeah, I also do not use air. Um, I don't think I ever have because I'm like you. I will continue to use ultrasound because what I like to do is I'll even see if after I inject contrast or saline into that renal pelvis to plump everything up with the first stick is actually maybe if I can see the calyx nicely under ultrasound is I'll do, my second stick will be under ultrasound you yes. know, instead of under fluoro. Mm-hmm. Um, just because to me, that's a lot easier than having to triangulate everything yeah. <laughs> under fluoro. Yeah. It's a lot of yes. time.
0: Yeah. So my my general tips for people struggling with the two stick technique are have good stable access into the renal pelvis or whatever you stuck. If it, maybe it was an undesirable calyx or whatever, have good stable access when you can continue pushing saline contrast or air in find an obliquity. That's going to work for that kidney and just work with two obliquities. Once you start, like if you're a pro in like doing three different obliquities makes sense to you, then, you know, keep calm and carry on. But like, if you're having, if you're getting disoriented, Find the AP obliquity, which you know makes sense, and then find your one oblique where you can see the kidney, and and just bounce between those two, yeah. And then and then also, like if you're having trouble choosing between an anterior and a posterior calyx, put a couple needle down, a couple needles, test needles down, and then rotate it a little bit into a more lateral position, and then depending on which needle like makes the most sense, then use that to then further target like the posterior calyx. Does that make sense with the three needles getting put in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I never heard that before. Did you learn that from somebody or did you develop yourself?
0: I can't remember if Baron taught me or maybe Keith Horton, uh, a guy and uh, DC taught me that, but like they were also, it it couldn't have been Keith. Keith was really good at the two stick technique, not to say that Baron wasn't, but I think like we were just kind of talking about how difficult it can be to like triangulate things. Yeah, Like when you're just using like hemostats on the skin. And so they're like, right. just take the guesswork out of it. Put two needles in and then you can choose which needle you want. So yeah. that's, I mean, it, it wasn't, I didn't think of it. So I, I just can't remember who to give the credit to. Yeah. And then as far as like CO2 or air, I've used it. And then I've kind of kicked myself afterwards for using it, yeah. but it it can be helpful so we've talked about access uh locations i will go back to that and so we've talked about i prefer mid-pole you like lower pole i will do upper pole access especially if it's for a stone case where you need upper pole access and you know it's just something like if as long as you talk to the patient ahead of time i think it's fair game try and stay below the 10th rib and you know i know everyone says like if you stay below the 12th rib but like a lot of times if you've already chosen upper pole access like the idea of being subcostal can be very tough Totally, and then yeah. and then also like what you have to contend with is like a decent angle where you can actually see the upper pole. Then also like it gets you into the calyx without like hosing you later on for the like the thirty French sheath that you have to put in because you'll kind of fight that rib.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or actually,
0: the urologists are more fighting that rib. But the, the other
1: thing I do, and I may I may have mentioned this in episode ninety seven, is I if it's if it's a lithotripsy case with a urologist, I will. Get a hold of the doc the day before or the morning of, and say, "Where do you want me the Where do you want this access?" Because I've been thrown under the bus in the past where I got the access where they didn't want it, and it was suboptimal for their procedure, and then uh, they made the patient uh, aware of that. And so, just beware. Like, I think communication is key. Anytime you are teaming up with another doc on patient care, you gotta gotta get them on the phone. So that's that's just my tip.
0: That's a great tip. I don't do that as much in practice, but I have to admit, I work with like the same 10 urologists all the time. We have a pretty good idea of their skill set. You know, like some of the younger urologists, they're much less particular about their stone access location than if, like, you're not used. I'll just leave it at that. Some are more particular than others. Yeah. And I think, like, it just goes to like speak to like not every urologist has the same skill set to access stones depending on where you put them. Now, that being said, I, you know, I think like when you really hose your urologist is if you have a big lower pole stone and you access in the lower <laughs> pole, but not at that stone. But, you know, like right. if you access, oh, yeah, like yeah. If, if you access yeah. like upper pole, then they can get down onto it if it's an upper pole stone and you do lower pole access. But um, certainly sticking down right on the stone can be advantageous also. Yeah. Yeah, you get
1: common sense. You got to think. Okay, how are they going to get to this stone? But also, I think it. I think they appreciate it too. If you ask them, I, you're right. Conversation. Sometimes it's hard to get them on the phone, and um, but I, I do think that it's it's like optimal patient care. Is all. I
0: I will. I'm not going to dispute that, Um, and I'm also not going to dispute that. Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of them. So. Talking about stone access, I think one of the challenging things of the procedure that comes up. So you're sticking straight down on a stone. You have no doubt that you're on top of the stone because you can feel the crunch. All right. So there's a tactile feedback and then you inject contrast. You can see that calyx kind of filling, but then you can't get the wire to go beyond the stone. Can you talk about some of the things that troubleshoot that scenario?
1: Yeah, that's tricky um, because sometimes you can't get the wire to go past the stone because you are like at a ninety degree yes. angle right on top of the stone. So of course, think about it. Like, how is that wire going to be able to get past? So you kind of have to. Sometimes you just play with the angle. It's like, okay, that was easy to get my my needle right onto the stone. Maybe I just need to try a different angle. Uh, and, and you don't even necessarily have to bring the needle all the way out of the kidney. You could just bring it back a little bit, angle it a touch. And then, try and get a little bit more parallel to the surface of that stone, so that you can imagine your wire sneaking around it uh, and sometimes it's just those little tricky little you know fine motor movements that make it happen. I have seen issues where you you try to get the the wire around a stone and the wire catches on the stone, right? <laughs> yes, that's oh talk about a no shit moment like that can be really. Difficult to to deal with, and um, trying to get, especially if that wire starts coming undone. So yes, you know you kind of have to think about those things, um, and and how you'll how you'll deal with them. I I remember just that happening in fellowship, and and it it was it was a little bit difficult, and and you almost have to abort if you can't get that. Well, anyway, I'm not going to go into like, because it it depends on the situation, depends on the the wire, how much, yeah. 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 So, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, what kind of wire is best to use in those situations? I think that uh, if your your typical cope wire or whatever comes with the uh, Acoustic set.
0: I usually, I'll I'll usually tell my text, give me the mandrel. I don't The mandrel, yeah, the mandrel's good. I don't, I don't know actually the official name of it.
1: Yeah, the, man, the mandrel is a good wire to start with. And do you? how quickly do you, if those aren't working, how quickly do you jump?
0: I jump pretty quickly. In fact, a lot of times, like if I'm sticking right down on the stone, I won't even use the stick wire. I'll go right to a Nitrex. And then after the Nitrex, my next wire is usually a pilot. And those come in different varieties, but I'll usually use the uh, stiffer variety. And I'll kind of, like you said, I'll probe. I'll try to, and like, like you said, I, I, a lot of times I don't even take my needle out of the out of the position that I stuck it in, I'm just kind of twerking it back one way or the other, trying to work that needle tip to where something, yeah. it just slides by. One of the other things I'll do is after I've probed a little bit and I'm not having a lot of luck and I'm not ready to give up the access quite yet, I'll inject like dilute contrast. Like, so I'm not trying to like, it's it's not so much contrast, it's more saline, but I'm just trying to like fill around the stone because sometimes the yeah. s- the, the intima is like stuck down on those stones. And what I'm trying to do is like kind of like dissect that free a little bit and sometimes i'll I'll either see something puff through and then i'll really attack that area or sometimes just in doing that it it could be in my head it could be totally luck but it kind of lubricates the area around the stone and then able to sneak a wire beyond it yeah but yeah that's i mean I, i wish there was a lot of smarter things to say about it but it's really just like continue to probe continue to work the tip of the needle I'm very reluctant to give up the access. A lot of times, I'll stick with another needle, like directly parallel to it. Like yeah. if I'm trying to work like a slightly different angle, and then I'll start probing with that one.
1: Yeah, that's a that's great advice. Um, I'll do the same thing with the injecting. I'll I'll start with just saline though, because yeah, yeah what yeah. can happen? I've seen this happen many times to since, you. <laughs> Me and others. Uh yeah. yeah, yeah. it's it just I whether it happens to me or somebody else, I'm always just like I feel bad for everybody involved. Um, because it just it'll just look like a bomb went off. Like if you're injecting contrast over and over again and it's not go you know, even if it's just going around the stone in these different little pockets, a lot of times you're like, I can't tell what's going on here. And then eventually you can't tell what's stone and what's contrast. Um and so I like to just start with saline. To again, if it's if if you're right on top of the stone, then you should be within uh, beyond that urethelium and you should yeah. be within the collecting system. So that saline should just be coating around the stone, hopefully plumping up the collecting system, and then you can get your wire to pass through. So I'll, I'll start with saline. I will. I'll usually wait with um, contrast until after I've uh, gotten my wire to go past the stone, gotten that stick or nef set in. And then I'll do contrasts at that time.
0: Man, it's just funny how like different, like, I mean, you know, you're a good interventionalist, I'm a good interventionalist and I would never start with saline, but yeah, a lot of times like I'll, once I've stuck the stone, I'm just doing the contrast injection. I will say there's a caveat to that. And what Aaron's describing is like, you come into one of your partner's cases and it looks like a, a contrast bomb went off on top of the kidney. That's yeah. exactly what you do not want. So you cannot, yeah. like if you are not in, don't keep injecting contrast, hoping that it's going to fill something. As soon yeah. as you just, as soon as you see blob, stop, and then you just need a better needle position. But I think we've all been in those cases, either where <laughs> it's our case or our partners, where you look at the, you look at the kidney, and you're just like, just shaking your head, you just feel terrible.
1: It was literally like one of the cases in my wor- first week of fellowship with Murray. and I just remember <laughs> the look on his face was just like. <laughs> It was like two hours later, and he's like, "God, you know it." And so I, I, I kind of have like PTSD from that because I remember how angry he yep. was. Yeah. And 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 I was like, I don't want that to ever happen to me. Now it still did happen to me at times, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just got to abandon the case. You're just like, I don't know how I'm ever going to get an F tube in here because, given the way this looks, with with confidence, right? And and I've had texts be like, "No, we should try this." And I'm like, "No, man, I I I'm done. Like we, you know, we'll call it. I'll talk to the urologist. I'll talk to the patient. We're we're two hours in. We got cases piling up. I I can't spend more time on this, you know. And it's because it, you can do more harm if you keep trying and if you put that neph tube in the wrong place, right? Because they're yeah. they're going to be putting a huge what yeah. What size is it? 30 French. Thirty French cannula, cannula in there. And you gotta have good access, otherwise it can do harm to that kidney, so.
0: I'll come in total agreement. And then also you have diminishing level of returns, like if yeah. your, your nephrostomy tube gets harder and harder to place, like the more like contrast your extravasating area, so yeah, yeah. So one of the other issues I want to talk about, and I feel like this can happen in stone case, it can happen in any case. Have you ever um, been subintimal? Like that was something. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, either yeah.
1: subintimal or you know, and th- this again goes to this is an issue I've had with the acoustic where you you get access and you know whatever core you know that stone whether maybe it's a staghorn, mm-hmm. but your acoustic is not taking a normal, the wire's not taking a normal course or a straight mm-hmm. course, and therefore the stick's not going to take a normal course. And I've had times where, again, because the stone is pushing right up against the urothelium, that stick pokes a hole or tears a hole rather as yep. it's trying to follow the, the, the wire. And then, again, you inject contrast, you don't know you don't know anything. You don't know if you're in or not. You don't know if that neph tube's going to go where you want it to do, go. And so I've had to, Abort cases in that case where thought I had access, tore a hole in the urethelium, you know, subsequent injections look like a bomb went off. So I just like, I'm, uh, you know, done. So it can happen at any stage of your procedure.
0: Yeah, I agree. It can happen with initial needle placement. Um, there's a urologist um, that I know that actually gets, uh, for simple, straightforward cases, he'll get his own access in the mm-hmm. OR. So he'll pop up, uh, you know, a retrograde uh, catheter and then plump up the system, stick down ah. on it. And he, he says like how often when he sticks that, that he'll see the needle come in. He's like, man, I should be seeing it. And he's like, in your subintimal He's like, how often are you guys subintimal And I'm like, probably a little bit more than, I mean, it probably happens, but you know we would know from our contrast injection and everything. But he's like, yeah. he's like wow. He's like, I've seen like that intima wrap around the needle. And so yeah. the only reason I bring it up is because I never was aware of it. Like I didn't even know that was a thing until like I got out. And then I had a case where I was clearly sub and I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. So I just bring it up for the trainees that like you can be subintimal. And my strategy, at least when I am, is like I'll continue to pull back like my acoustic set and continue to probe with the wire until I can start spinning it freely. I almost treat it like a dissection. And then once I'm yeah. free spinning, then I'll kind of advance it. And like once you're in the ureter uh, and your wire is kind of spinning freely, you know you've kind of released that. Yeah. Oh, one thing we didn't talk about. You said like use uh, Amplatz wire. I almost always do these over a glide wire. Like a stiff glide? No, not even a stiff glide. Just an actual glide wire.
1: So if it's a, if it's a stone case, then it's definitely a glide, or usually a stiff glide. But if it's just a standard dilated, infected kidney or collecting system, then I'll use an implants because I, I like the stiffness of it um, when I dilate and get that tube in.
0: Do you? Ever, I mean, I'm not saying this happens to me all the time, but like sometimes I find in bigger patients, like the the tube or the drain just binds on me, like with the amplats. Hmm. Um, I find always with braided wires, like the tubes bind. And so I'm always, like I've just given up on braided wires and with all my drains, like biliary or whatever, I'm just always in a glide or a stiff glide. But I well, get it. There's a, I, there's a trade-off for that.
1: Yeah. What I find if whatever they have, you know, they have an amplats or sorry, they ha- let's say they have a glide on the table and I end up using it. It's just dilating across that renal cortex can be, problematic and you have to really make sure that you're not because that wire's flimsy right and so mm-hmm. uh, that's where i feel like the implants really helps uh especially if you have good purchase it's just dialing across that renal cortex and, and also just getting that that tube over but you're right it, it can bind for sure
0: yeah I, I mean there's pluses and minuses with each system both both wires there's just so many wires that get you the same place um so drain selection uh you said eight french ten french tubes um i'll say that i'm usually a ten french nephrostomy person i remember one of my older attendings moran steve morans we were putting in i think a nephrostomy tube and i was like eight eight french he's like he's like eight french is for air and then that always stuck with me and so but i think eight most people put in eight eight and a half french nephrostomy tubes but i'm always ten french (laughs) It's funny that
1: Moran said that because I don't, you know, I also trained at Vandy and I, I I feel like unless it was Frank Puss, we were doing eight Frenches, especially just for like, you know, urine, uh, simple urine. But, uh, you know, I, I do know people that they don't go, I think Allie mentions like she doesn't go below Mm -hmm. 10. To me, it just, if it's simple fluid, like a seroma or if it's If it's any simple fluid, then a eight should work. But that being said, you know, these people do come back. They, you know, sediment forms in the urine Mm -hmm. and they come back with a crusty catheter. So a 10 probably would do them better in the long run.
0: So how do you secure your drains down?
1: Usually I think it's 2.0 silk. I like silk for the drains. I don't like proline. I just feel like silk works well. Uh, it doesn't like pull on the skin. It, uh, it's easy to remove when you're doing tube changes or removals. So I, I, I like silk.
0: Okay. I'll do Ethalon. Um, and I like, it's a little easier to work with proline and, you know, I do a bite on the skin surface. I don't cinch it down because it makes it harder to remove it later. So there's like a little bit of an yeah. air knot right there and then totally. sandal tie. So recently, one of the things that got posted to SIR forum is the bumper stitch. Have you seen that yeah, or yeah. use that? So it was it was a pen paper, they wrote it up and we can link to that, but it's basically, it, it's almost like a, mm, I kind of forgot the names of these sutures, but like a vertical mattress and where, you, so you take a bite through the skin and then after that you place the needle through like a small, like say half a centimeter or one centimeter of like sterile tubing. And then so you're going, you're the needle's going through the inside of the tubing. And so now your tubing's looped up on the uh, wire and then, I'm sorry, the uh, stitch, and then you take another bite kind of where the skin exit site's closer to your skin entry site for the original one. And then like whenever you tie it down, that little piece of tubing is cinched down against the skin. And apparently mm-hmm. that gives you a more secure hold on your tubing. I've never used the bumper stitch. I had to read the article on it. And um, I haven't had, a, I mean, I have. I mean, certainly I had problems with tubes coming out, but I don't know if the bumper stitch is the answer, but that's one Do you way. You ever use you're... the StayFix device? Oh yeah, a my techs love the stay fix. Yeah, they love the stay yeah. fix. Um, so they'll so
1: you'll suture it down and then they'll put
0: a stay fix on top. They'll put a stay well. fix on top of it. But yeah. I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm plus minus on the stay fix. I, I mean, it always
1: causes it's like a big old adhesive. I know thing. it's always hard to get off. Kind of feel bad for the patients. It's hard to not only get off the skin, but it's also hard to get off the tube when you're changing mm-hmm. the tube out. Yeah. I feel like there needs to be innovation in how tubes are held in place because to you know minimize trauma, so the patients don't need another stick, and they don't have to have a suture there, which can you know sutures can cause issues. It'd be cool if somebody came up with something that held that in place without adhesive and without suture. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Bigger Jane, less likely to get pulled out.
1: That's true. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, the pigtail is supposed to help prevent that. Too, yeah, yeah, but, of course.
0: You know. Do you ever place a uh, like de novo? Have you ever placed a double J ureteral stent?
1: Yeah, not de novo. Usually, they've already had a tube in for a, a little while, and for whatever reason, they can't get one f- a stent in from below. So usually, it's something that's already had a F tube in. But some I, I've had I've had to do it de novo f- um, from a fresh stick, and I mean, you know, they're kind of fun cases because they're more they're a little bit more challenging than a regular neph tube. And it's, it's a little bit challenging getting the measurement just right. Sometimes, a lot of times, like the, the tube ends up being a little bit too long. Yeah. I, I, I definitely err on long versus too short. Too long, for sure. Yeah. But it can cause some issues if it's too long where it causes bladder irritation. Bladder spasms. And spasms, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, those, that, that, that could be another topic that we cover, you know, because that, that, there are a lot of tricks to that. We could cover that, na- you know, another time.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'll say sometimes I will de novo place a double J ureteral stent and um, plus or minus whether or not like I use a, a like I'll back that up with a, a pigtail nephrostomy tube. But sometimes like I've, I've placed like a double J and like it was in a, I think like you can use that for appropriate settings where like, if it's a stone, you think urology would have been able to pass. We've run into that where like, we don't have great, I shouldn't say we don't have great urology coverage. We have urology coverage, but like I said, they have different skill sets and like some of them would be able to pass the stone, some of them wouldn't. And so if it's like, you know, a five millimeter distal ureteral stone and like my wire sails through, I'll place a double J and then just, you know, kind of wipe my hands of it. Yeah. All right, so post-op care. So there's inpatients and outpatient nephrostomy tubes. I think like the inpatients that are like pyonephrosis, like it's like a no brainer. They're probably in the unit or they're probably going to the unit. Um, what I'm interested to know is like, what do you do with your outpatient nephrostomy tubes? Keep them, keep them or admit them.
1: Well, I'm going to discharge them probably after like two hours, as long as the urine is not grossly bloody and their vital signs are stable We're I'm sending them out the door in a couple hours once I wake up. But for just to go back to the urine color, uh, you know, you're causing some trauma, you're causing some trauma to the kidney. So a lot of times you'll have a little bit of Kool-Aid, especially if it was like clear to begin with, you have some Kool-Aid colored uh, urine that's going to clear over time. I always let the nurses mm-hmm. and the patient know that, hey, it's going to be a little bit bloody. If it's like bright red blood, then that's something to worry about for sure. You may have caused a pseudoaneurysm. But if it's like, even if it's like venous, what I'll do is I'll irrigate it, especially if they're not, if it's not like frank pus, I will irrigate the collecting system. If if it seems a little bit bloody, it might just be like venous blood. I'll flush it with like, you know, hundred cc's of saline, you know, 20s back and forth till I get it to clear up a little bit. And uh, then I know, okay, I didn't cause like an arterial injury, but yeah, when it's like just blood coming out, then that's a little bit worrisome. So
0: Have you had like arterial blood come out after you place the tube?
1: No, I mean, not, not that I've seen immediately. Um, I've had times where Maybe even a stone case where it was a little bit traumatic where the blood it it is a little bit bloody, and I always talk to the urologist the urologist like they shrug that off, they're like, yeah, blood, whatever you because know, especially after they stick that thirty French in there, they get bloody urine for days, um yeah, yeah. And so they don't worry about it as much, but for us, it can be a little bit like worrisome, so I always keep an eye on those patients it it's always ended up being just like. Traumatic blood, but not never. I've never had that I know of a pseudoanurism from one of my neph tubes that I know. Okay,
0: of. I'll say that I've never had frank blood, or I've never had what I thought was arterial-looking blood on a nephrostomy tube uh, stick, or after the the drain was in place. Routinely, though, I have some like dark blood that like fills the tube. It almost looks like you're just getting venous blood out through the tube, right. Um, right? And I've had plenty of those, and a lot of times, uh, just anecdotally, mine are with stone cases. So stone cases uh, tend to be a little bit bloodier in my experience, and I just, uh, like, I, I don't actually irrigate the nephrostomy tube, but I will um, have them flush it more routinely. But I've never, like, thought I had, like, an arterial bleed de novo, but we've had some where we've pulled the tubes, and then all of a sudden, like, we have hematuria that would have gone on to, like, angio and, like, proven pseuteraneurysms or AV fistulas. Um, yeah. So I, it's been my experience that a lot of times your tube can tamponade that off. And right. I, I bet you you have arterial hits more often than we know of. They probably just kind of self-resolve. But I've never had yeah. like someone I stuck and then immediately thought like I need to take them to angio. So as far as nephrostomy tubes go, if you're writing in your notes like nephrostomy tube placed, do you use the abbreviation PCN or NT as a nephrostomy tube abbreviation?
1: I would use PCN. That's the way I kind of learned...
0: Yeah. also use PCN, but I noticed that um, a lot of people that I work with use NT for nephrostomy tube. And so I always thought that yeah. was funny that like what that I thought was sense. just like standard. Yeah, like NT also makes plenty of sense. All right. So, guys, I think we've covered the topic pretty well. There's probably like a little bit more to work to do in far as like tubology, like leaking tubes, malposition tubes, getting tubes yeah. back in, encrusted tubes and taking them out. But um, maybe we could uh, do another podcast and cover some of like the problems that happen with tubes.
1: I think tubology, because we talked about that um, mm-hmm. with Baratza on the abscess drain one, it would be good because we, we could cover all different types of tubes. We could cover neph tubes, G tubes, abscess drainages, because they all have their own unique problems, right? Yeah. And so I think that would be a great episode, just like tubology 101, keeping them open, something like that. You know? <laughs> keeping
0: them open, removing them, <laughs> changing them, leaking yeah. around them. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. So uh, to the audience, thank you guys for listening. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes of this episode. We're going to link to a couple articles that we referenced. Um, You can find those at www.backtable.com. And remember, uh, the show notes are where you can find some links to some free CME, so um, check it out. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for hosting, bud. Thank
1: you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts,
0: Chris Beck, Sabine Dawn,
1: Michael Barraza,
0: and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.